Here's another inspiring speech recorded at Communities in Control, Australia's biggest and best annual community sector gathering. Our next speaker signals an exciting new step for this conference. We're going interactive. This year, we want to put you in charge of the Communities in Control agenda. Well, part of it at least. In the past two weeks and over the next two days and in the three weeks or so after the conference, we're staging an Our Say. What's an Our Say? Well, this is all about new technology and I'm over 50 years of age, so you probably don't want to hear about new technology from me. Someone who you do want to hear from, a person that I'm sure is going to be one of the movers and shakers in this country in years to come, in fact he already is that, is Ayal Hamalish, is a man who describes himself as an activist in a suit. Now, I don't know what you do when you hear the word activist, but I think of dreadlocks, special cigarettes and tree chains. But there's none of that here today. Ayal is one of the new breed of activists who are changing the way we do social interaction in this country. Originally from Chicago, he's a former college campus activist who is the CEO of Our Say, an organisation that connects the public with leaders in our community. This is no flash in the pan. In the past year, Our Say has partnered with ABC's Q&A, The Sunday Age and Crikey. They've worked with Prime Ministers, State Parliamentarians, State Premiers, local governments, all to ensure people's questions are answered in profiled in an adequate way. And they're now working with us. To find out what about or what is our say, I'll please ask Al to come up. Thank you. Thank you for that. I didn't uh, grow up my dreadlocks for this one, so you'll have to wait a couple more weeks for that. But I wanted to say, um, pay my respects to the traditional owners as well, and also thank you to the Honourable Peter Ryan for being here, and thank you, Joan Kerner, for being here as well. Um, and just to kick off, I wanted everyone in the room to, to stand up. I love it when that happens. Sometimes you know, there's a couple of people who restrain themselves. So I want you to think about one thing, one issue that burns inside of you, something that you go home at night and you think about it. Maybe it's the thing, the thing that wakes you up in the morning and gets you to work. Um, it's a thing that burns inside of your thing on a regular basis, and in fact, maybe it's something you want to pose to the government or something you want to pose to someone who can actually make a decision about it. Think about that one thing. And when I count to three, I want you to say that thing out loud. We're all going to say it in unison. I want you to say that thing out loud when I count to three. Think about that thing that burns inside of you. One, two, three. Amazing. Right now, we had all those ideas, those concepts flying through the air, bumping into each other, crashing into one another. Now, imagine if we could capture every single one of those issues that you care about and find other people in this room who care about those issues, get them to promote or prioritize those issues and pose them to people in government or people in positions of power that can actually do something about those issues, bringing us together around the issues that we care about and putting them in places where we can do something about them. Or right, have a seat.
that very crazy idea that I just talked about, that's the reason we created our site. It's a, it's a website. It's also an organization that works offline to help organizations think about the issues that they care about, help individuals think about the issues that they care about, post questions about those issues, and then prioritize them online and then put those to people in positions of power, such as government officials or the CEOs of major organizations in Australia. And so as, as was mentioned before by Dennis, we're working with Communities in Control to do that in this very conference. So for the last two weeks, we've had rsa.org running where people could write questions they cared about and then invite people using Facebook or Twitter. Or for those of you who don't use those social media technologies, you can go on, on your emails or even just invite people and drag them over to your laptop or your computer and get them to vote for your question. And so just outside um, this room, there's a couple of computers set up where you can actually go and write a question about an issue that you care about and try to drag you know, one, two, even five people at this conference to vote for your question. So the game is on, and it's up to you to see if you can get your question into the top three. And tomorrow, in the afternoon, we're going to take those top three questions and we're going to pose them to people who are, who are e either currently or former members of government. So we're going to have Stephen Maine, we're going to have um, John Thwaites and Fran Bailey from the Howard government responding to the top three questions on RSA, the ones that you're going to be prioritizing over the next couple of days. And then after this conference, we're going to take it beyond and we're going to spend the next two weeks enabling you to prioritize those questions, and we're going to take them to three levels of government, someone at a local level, at a state level, and at a federal level, and get them to respond either with a policy statement or just a vocal response to the questions that you have about the community sector. To tell you a little bit about how the RSA game works, you go to the website, you register your, your, um, to, sh to prove that you're a person with your email, and then you confirm your email. And then you can go to the site and post your question, and you get seven votes. So don't forget this. You get seven votes, which means if you got five people at this conference to vote for your question right now, you would be in the top three um, questions because the top three questions are only at about 40 um, votes each, plus one that's actually skyrocketed to the top with about 700 votes. But if we could get 100 people at this conference to vote for one question, you'd be competing in the top spot. Um, it's an amazing opportunity to see how you can set the public agenda for the issues that government are responding to, and it's also a great opportunity to take that beyond this conference and continue the conversation about the issues that you care about. So get involved. After we leave this room, get in the other, another room and post your questions, vote for them, and tell your friends and family outside this conference about the issues you care about, and we'll see who's winning uh, by tomorrow afternoon. Thanks so much. time to have an Our Say panel. Greetings to you all and welcome back. My name is Brett DeHoot. Now, you may have noticed that lunch was extended somewhat. That's because we commissioned some polling. We crunched the numbers and agreed that only a change of MC could put us in a winning position as we head towards afternoon tea. Yes, folks, we are getting political. We have not one but three politicians, current and former, ex and exiting, local, state and federal. They are about to take your questions. But first, I do have three things to say. Joan Kerner, Joan Kerner, Joan Kerner. Look, interesting fact, every speaker who graces the stage at Communities in Control must mention Joan Kerner three times. And I have just fulfilled my contractual obligation. Um, I have been a part, a proud part of nine out of ten Communities in Control conferences. Please, no spontaneous applause. The reason why I missed out on 2009 is because in 2008 I mentioned Joan only twice. 
And it didn't matter, it mattered not that one of those mentions was as part of a sonnet that I composed in your honour, where I compared her to the tear rolling down the cheek of a child, the cool breeze after a blistering summer's day, and that bite into the first apple of spring. After delivering the sonnet to rapturous applause, I said to Joan, Madam Joan, what did you make of my sonnet? To which she replied simply, not enough Joan. And I was suspended for 12 months. But I'm back now. Now, you've heard a lot about the interweb, social media campaigning and how you know, social media is going to bring social justice. Well, I must confess, this session, 25 minutes, a short, sharp session, is inspired by a website, OurSay.org. Ayal Halamish, one of the founders of the site, explained it to you yesterday. Does anyone here need to get a grip on how the site works? Who has voted on the site in the last 20... Great. Do you like it? It gives you access to people who sometimes don't return your calls or write back or agree to meet with you. They gather the powerful, pose your questions, and it's an opportunity for you to organise and not just suggest questions but campaign for them. So it is something of a meritocracy as well. It seems now, thanks to our side, that the internet is about more than just online sports betting and hardcore pornography. Who knew? Although they're perhaps both more profitable. But never mind. Folks, three speakers, three panellists answering your questions, and I can definitely say that they are your questions. The top three at least have been voted on um, over the last few days alone. So these are your questions. So panellists, these are the questions from the people in the room. Without further ado, let me introduce them to you. John Thwaites is the former... Deputy Premier of Victoria, where some of you might be familiar with his work uh, with the social policy Affairer Victoria. Now, during his time in Parliament, he serves as Minister for Health, Planning, Environment, Water, Communities and Climate Change. Something of a ministerial drifter, clearly, John. Now, <laughs> since wrapping up, quite unexpectedly, his career, he's followed his passions of environmental protection, climate change, sustainability, CSR, and, of course, he's also these days a professorial fellow at Monash University. Actually, John, we have a lot in common. I have an associate diploma in writing and editing from Holmes Glen Tafe. So, you know, it's just a professional courtesy. When two academics meet, they, you know, later on we'll compare leather patches on our plaid jackets and drink port. Actually, I only have a Tafe education. There have been some savage cutbacks to Tafe in Victoria. Are you aware of that? Um, I went to Holmes Glen, probably the biggest Tafe in Australia and it's going to be turned into a Bunnings. So bad are the cutbacks. But they are consolidating all the academic roles of the TAFE into the Bunnings help desk. So it all comes out even. Are there any women in the room? Any feminists of any gender? Slight pause, but that's reassuring. Oh, you've all got the benefits of it, but you won't. Anyway, don't worry. Sorry. Well, then you might be interested to meet the first woman to represent a rural electorate in the history of our federation, Fran Bailey, ladies and gentlemen. During her time in Parliament, she held portfolios like tourism, defence, employment services, small business. You also had a phrase grafted to your name, Fran Bailey, and that was popular local member. And Fran Bailey, popular local member for the seat of McEwen, Fran Bailey, popular local member for the most marginal seat in the country, Fran Bailey, you had that, those words welded to your name in every bit of media coverage about you. And there was a lot because you held the seat, lost the seat, won back the seat, showing tenacity, as you'd expect from a popular local member, and then had about nine months in the um, court of disputed 
returns, etc., etc., because it was so marginal they had to recount every vote. Today, Fran is happily, I presume, retired from that game, but is chair of the Animal Aid Foundation and director of the International Women's Federation of Commerce and Industry. And, and Fran was very much involved with, uh, in the aftermath of the Black Saturday bushfires. Please make Fran very welcome. No stranger to the Communities in Control stage is Stephen Main. Stephen Main, outspoken, controversial founder of crikey.com.au, a persistent um, thorn in the sides of journalists and boardrooms across the country. He was once Jeff Kennett's press secretary. Then he became a turncoat and ran against him in the 1999 elections. Thanks for breaking up the band Yoko. Uh, he failed in that attempt and thus began one of the world's longest ever losing streaks. <laughs> you were always running for stuff. RACV was a persistent sort of target. He wanted, I don't know, the stature. He wanted the kudos. He wanted the free parking. He wanted the discount card. No, he wanted to serve the community. And that's what he's been doing since 2008 as a councillor with Manningham Council here in Melbourne. A position he plans to step away from later this year. Stephen, weren't you on the tourism subcommittee for Manningham City Council? What are they going to do without you? Prosper. Prosper. <laughs> He's a very well-known shareholder activist um, and recently has become a... Uh, well, started a winning streak by becoming a director of the Australian Shareholders Association. Please make Stephen very welcome. <laughs> I have in my hot little hand the hottest questions on the interweb as voted mainly by you and other people out there. I hope you've taken that opportunity to do just that, to, get the, to set the agenda and put the communities in control. By the way, I have been part of this site um, early on, since I conceived it with his co-founders, and it always amazes me what a small, passionate, entirely under-resourced, entirely volunteer-driven organisation can achieve. So congratulations to our say. An incredible opportunity for the community sector. Question number one, and panel will take your responses in any order they come. It's, um, it goes a little bit like this. Victorian Premier Ted Bathew supports voluntary euthanasia. We're starting off with a gentle one to warm them up. <laughs> Ted Bathew supports voluntary euthanasia. So do the overwhelming majority of Victorians and Australians across all states and territories. Why isn't it law? Over to you for that one, panel. You know what they say, if you want something difficult, you always give it to a woman to do. <laughs> I know, guys, that was shameless. <laughs> um, well, starting with, I think probably I've had a look at these questions and they are, I think we are starting with the, with the most difficult one. But before I um, respond, I just wanted to take the opportunity to thank all of you. Um, I really don't think you're thanked sufficiently for all of the work that you do within your own communities. And uh, so, please, I'd just like to place that personally on the record. Look, I think this is a difficult issue. Um, I, I would state personally that I'm in favour of, of this. Um, recently, I'm sure that I heard that the state government had introduced, or the Minister from Health, for Health had introduced some legislation whereby um, people making a will can spell out in detail what they would accept or not accept 
if they um, were confronted with a situation where they were not able um, to make a determination, for example, if they needed uh, resuscitation or if they were involved in a serious accident and they were in a, a vegetated state, um, and so that their families were very clear about what the wishes um, are of that person involved. I think in, the question, of course, is why hasn't government moved on this? And it, it hasn't moved on it because while some reports will say that a majority of the community is in favour of it, someone will always come up with another report that's, that says that the majority are not in favour of it. And governments, by their very nature, um, can be out in front on some issues, but on an issue which is such a deeply personal issue, um, I don't think that any government, no matter what its political stripes, would be prepared to get way out in front. So then I think that then raises the issue, what does the community do about trying to convince a government that what they want to achieve is in fact supported um, by the majority of the community. And I actually have a, have a rule, and I certainly used it when I was a minister, that people who would come to me to lobby about an issue, to test that issue, you really had to test the people who were presenting that issue and how well-researched was the issue that they were trying to convince you to agree with. So I think, actually, there probably is still a lot more work that needs to be done within the communities to convince government that this, in fact, is something that government should move on. I think we got an insight into why Fran is a popular local member. She thanked you before she said anything. In no form of answer, just a, a gratitude to you, and you were putty in her hands. And I think we also got an insight into her experience as a minister in question time. She, the thank you was very genuine, I'm sure, but it also allowed her to think about what she was going to say, which is what I'm doing right now. Uh, but I'd say a few things. First, as a polit or exited politician, parliamentarian, I'd make it clear that I, I never felt I was bound to follow what the majority view was. And the fact that the majority of people might, in a poll, say that they support euthanasia is not necessarily going to be the, the key factor for me. I, I weigh up the pros and cons for myself. And to give an example, uh, I put capital punishment, where you know, for many periods of history in Australia, if you asked, uh, do you support capital punishment, you would have got a majority of people supporting it. And you certainly have in Canada and the US today and I wouldn't support that. So I do think politicians and governments have a responsibility to go beyond uh, simply accepting what uh, a poll says. And I also think that uh, parliamentarians in making laws are in a different position to people who are responding to a poll because on an issue like euthanasia, uh, you're not just getting, giving a general view about whether in principle people ought to be able to uh, choose to, uh, to, to die uh, with some form of assistance. It's also about all the safeguards and risks around that. And certainly for me, that's one of the things that would weigh pretty heavily, that uh, I place such a high 
priority on human life that I'd be very, very concerned to ensure that there are great safeguards before euthanasia were uh, introduced. And a bit as Fran said, you've got to do that research. I'm not sure that that I'd be convinced that the safeguards are there. And I do, I have that position not on the basis of any religious uh, beliefs I've got, but more simply on the basis of my concern that things can be abused, that laws can be abused and you have to protect people. So that would be my answer as to why it hasn't happened. I think a lot of politicians would be like myself. They wouldn't necessarily be swayed by what the poll says and they would be concerned about safeguards and risks. I think it's one of those issues maybe you'd include pokies, um, drug uh, pre- prohibition policies, gay marriage. It's, it's Yes, there is a clear majority, but it's not in the public's top ten. So it's not a vote changer. So when Philip Nitschke ran against my local member, Kevin Andrews, in 2007, he got 3.9% of the vote. You know so what that's like. I do. Mm. Uh, he, got a bit, he got a bit more than I usually get. So I said, you know, almost got his deposit back. So, um, uh, so I think, and, in, and when it was tested on the floor of the federal parliament, it was 88 to 35 when Kevin Andrews put up his private members bill. And, you know, there's only been 15 private members bills get up federally. So the politicians felt quite strong about it. And I think there is a bit of a skew within our political representation towards the conservative uh, on the social issues, the, the religious right, the conservative Catholics within, uh, within the ALP. I think uh, you see that in the Senate and the way the voting systems get done. If you go to a Liberal pre-selection these days, it's often these abortion and these sort of conservative church-driven issues that often get raised. So I think there is a bit of a gerrymander and a skew in terms of where the political representation sits, but there isn't enough of a coordinated campaign. And I think politicians are very nervous, as John said, about making laws that can end someone's life. And absolutely, the complexities and the sensitivities. Remember Peter Costello's line that, you know, the the children wanting access to the cash, to the house, and just the idea of politicians being uh, responsible for that. So I think with the rise of the Greens, the Greens are the only political party which is firmly in favour of this, and they have been for a long time. And I think the fiscal and demographic realities of health budgets will eventually catch up with this issue, eventually, uh, but it will probably be you know, a long time coming uh, before the reality that does set in on this one. Thank you, Stephen. Time is cruel. We could talk about that clearly for the entire session, but I know, and I have done some work in the, for a couple of key lobby groups on this issue, so I may be biased, but I don't anymore. According to some news poll polling, about 85% of people support euthanasia legislation. Can I call a snap poll in the room in favour of legislation to make as an optional, as an option, dying with dignity or euthanasia? Hands up if you're in favour. Yes, typical bunch of lefties, almost uh, 100%. But isn't it interesting how sometimes an overwhelming majority is enough to justify law and sometimes it's not? I don't get that, but we haven't got time to debate it, though I think it's a pretty deep question. Number two, one in 14 children in Australia is born without the capacity to gain, understand or use language. Without intervention, they face a drastic future, so much so that 50% of youth offenders in this country have a serious oral language deficiency. Why, as a nation, are we not tackling the challenges that these children present us with? 
which is a preposition at the end. The, the challenges with which these children present us, pretty ironic, isn't it? But anyway, <laughs> panel, it's the one thing I learned at TAFE. Prepositions, not at the end. That's it. I should have. I had to go to TAFE. It's now a Bunnings. Well, I'll try not to leave any hanging prepositions, but I'll start. Uh, but I'll start by saying I wasn't aware of uh, this issue. Certainly, the extent that it's uh, set out in the question. So I suppose that's the first answer that I don't think people in government and politics are aware. Uh, and my recommendation would be, if if this is correct, that there needs to be information and education for policy officers and the community and the media about the issues. And I guess the final thing I am very aware of, that the first and early years of a child's life are the most critical in determining the future of that person throughout adulthood. And once you get to about six or seven, uh, if a child has had severe disadvantage or levels of abuse or other uh, major difficulties, then it's much more likely that the child will grow up into an adult that is unemployed, is has mental illnesses in uh, prison or uh, has a generally unsatisfactory life. And so investing in those early years is probably the most important thing we as governments can do. Thanks, John. I was unaware of those figures also. And the first question that came to my mind is how do these children get through to high school without it being detected that they don't have these oral or written skills. And it goes without saying that, you know, the major stumbling block to any future learning to be able to be um, optimising um, any individual's own capacities, I mean, you, you really must have those oral and written skills. Um, so then, therefore, I, I mean, a couple of questions come to mind. Um, obviously, it's in, in primary school where, where children are taught to read if they can't read, and many do, of course, when, when they start school. Um, sometimes I think we expect too much of our teachers. They certainly have a very overcrowded curriculum in many ways. And I guess class sizes are also an issue because, once again, I keep coming back to the question, how do these children um, keep advancing through our education system without these very basic skills. So therefore, we've got to look at what um, programs we've got in school. How do we test? How do we find out whether um, our children are getting these crucial skills? Uh, should it be done um, uh, through um, the national curriculum approach? Um, I obviously always speak from a federal perspective, but I think if these figures would obviously um, be representative across the nation, so therefore maybe we should be looking at this from a nationalist perspective. I think Barack Obama is the best example of how far great oral schools can take you. And uh, I remember speaking to a top 30 public company chair in Australia and I was saying, what is your greatest skill and what is the most important skill for being a chair of a, of a $15 billion public company? And the response was the ability to sit around the table and orally communicate with your colleagues. And it just got me thinking that people don't, don't uh, advocate oral skills enough in our society. And uh, maybe Fran's right about the overcrowded... Uh, 
uh, curriculums. I, I'm a supporter of NAPLAN in the sense that it's, it's the early detection will help with detection and therefore with resourcing and early intervention and responding. But maybe there are some other programs. I mean, councils run libraries across the country, many of them subscale. We haven't invested enough in the technology and, and uh, you know, there isn't a national you know, heavy approach to libraries. Libraries need to be a key part of this. Young kids in libraries, reading days. Maybe another one, we talk about the social isolation of nursing homes. Well, you know, I'm on a board of a nursing home and I'm just sort of reading this thinking, well, why haven't we got the kids coming in and reading to our residents? Why, why aren't we right across libraries and all elements of community absolutely highlighting the emphasis of oral presentation. I mean, we should do Toastmasters and all those things. You don't hear much about Toastmasters these days, do you, about the importance of those oral presentations? So I think that's, that statistic and that alignment of the, uh, the way the, the question was presented was also a surprise to me. Um, and I think maybe we've just taken our eye off the ball as to the absolute social power that comes from an ability to articulate and present well. And you have to be able to read to do that, but then you have to take that next step and to be able to communicate orally. So uh, I think it's great to have this issue, issue raised because we don't, we don't appreciate the, the importance of it. Do we like what Stephen said? Yeah. We do? Good. I missed it. I was just updating my Facebook status. Now, <laughs> by the way, I had dinner with the teacher... Uh, who I asked, how, how's this year going? Teachers in a working-class suburb of Melbourne in the West, uh, year sevens. And I said, how's it going? She said, oh, not very good. I spent the first four months of the year teaching to the test, NAPLAN. And I asked, of course, as an ignorant, non-child-owning person, what do you teach to? What gets tested? And she told me, as you, you know, and you may not know, grammar, reading comprehension, the writing of a persuasive letter, and maths. And she felt that for the first four months of the year, her and her colleagues were trapped into teaching to the test so the kids do well on NAPLAN, and she felt that was a bad thing. And the rest of the table, of course, turned on her like a cobra and said, well, duh, what else should you be teaching? How does this room feel about NAPLAN testing? Positive? Boo. Well, see, you're the problem. Right. (laughs) Question number three, and it will just be a beautiful finish because we'll have time for the third question. The top three, these have been voted on by you. A totally different issue, and it goes a little bit like this. It's simple. Let's set up nursing homes for young people. Why isn't the government helping to make this happen? Over to you, panel. We like this question, don't we? Yeah, I thought so. This is a question that um, I... Really, I have had some experience with, and I, I think it's an issue that is often hidden in society, and far too few of our members of parliament, I think, are even aware of it. Um, I can still vividly remember going to a nursing home in my electorate and uh, being taken on a tour through the nursing home, and I found it very confronting, I have to say. And only to discover that there were two relatively young people there. One had MS and the other one was a a young man who'd um, very sadly come off a a motorcycle and had um, severe um, head injuries. Now, there was no one there to actually cater to the needs of those two people. There were no activities uh, they were in um, certainly the young woman with MS um, was fully alert to um, what was happening in her surroundings. 
um, I actually still feel upset even thinking about that day because the honest answer is, you know, that not much has been done. And that um, description that I've just given you, that happened to me um, almost 20 years ago. Now, there is, and I'm, I'm aware that the... In fact, I met just briefly before we came up on stage... Um, I think it's Jennifer, isn't it, who was one of the people responsible for this um, question. Um, and her Rotary Club, I think, yes. is very interested in pursuing this. This is an issue that really does have to be brought to the attention of our members of parliament at all levels of government. I'm not sure, for example, when I first read the question, I like the term nursing home for young people uh, because... So many of them um, do have their mental faculties and they're very aware of the environment in, in, in which they have to be placed. I think that this, once again, has to be handled. Probably the lead on it has to come from uh, the national government, the federal government. Um, the, the states and local governments certainly have a role to play. How it can be progressed more quickly um, is the challenge. And once again, I think that this is an issue that really the community within, um, and, and, and particularly can I say within regional communities who have even less access to facilities than those living in our major capital cities. There has to be, this has to be brought to the attention of government and really, um, when each of you go back out to your respective organisations, no matter which area you work in, um, this is an issue that I think that you would be doing our entire society a great benefit if you were to raise this issue with your, whoever was your local MP um, at local, state and, and federal level because it is only, change can only happen in this, in this area if all three levels of government really get on and, and are, are singing from the same hymn sheet. Um, it's a travesty that this has been allowed to occur for so long and so little has been done. And these people are some of the most vulnerable in our society and they deserve a much, much better go than what they're getting. I certainly uh, agree with Fran's point and I think it's an important point not to class it as a nursing home per se. It is a long-term place for people to live young people who have either been injured or suffer from severe and debilitating uh, illnesses. To get to the core of why uh, this occurs, it's essentially a cost-shifting issue between state and federal governments, uh, and neither state nor federal governments have been prepared to take on the huge financial cost, which it would be, of providing adequate long-term uh, places. And partly because of their fear of the dollars, they've also shied away from coming up with some solutions which actually might be innovative and provide a, a, much, a much better solution than we've got now. I know Bronwyn Pike, when she was Minister for Health, certainly um, started a process in Victoria of some negotiation with the Commonwealth Government with a view to uh, providing some better facilities, but the demand is far, far greater than than what the uh, supply that, of places that we have. 
And I suppose the final thing I'd say is it's, this is another issue like disability, a national disability scheme, where the community has to make a real assessment about whether it's going to continue to want to pay less tax and have a generally right. low taxing country or whether we're going to be a community that pays a little more and provides a fairer and broader range of services to our citizens. Because uh, there will be a cost and it, you can't be dishonest about that. You have to be honest. It's going to be a cost and the only way I can see it being met is by all the community agreeing that we're going to have to pay a little bit more uh, in taxation. John's certainly right about the cost shift because the majority of young people in nursing homes go straight from hospital. So it's the state-run hospitals. They've been in for six months and a majority of these people are, uh, acquire brain injury um, patients. And it's the hospital looking around for um, somewhere to go and the nursing home is, is, is what happens. And that goes straight into $32 a day out of Canberra plus the whole bond system which, uh, which works with nursing homes. I agree that the best way to answer this is through a national system through the National Disability Insurance Scheme and that if you look at how the TAC in Victoria, uh, for people who specifically are injured on the roads, they have done quite a bunch of good innovative programs and pr provided accommodation for their clients because they have the billions of dollars and because they have all the data, you do see the TAC can do interventions. Now, you don't have that sort of scale in the disability sector. I think some people would, would agree the disability sector is too fragmented and you don't therefore get that national approach looking at the data. Clearly, the Department of Health and Ageing out of Canberra ought to be providing an incentive, uh, a higher day rate or a bond discount or something, to get a small number of nursing homes, call them nursing homes, that specialise in... So they're not actually nursing homes, but that specialist accommodation, supported care... Uh, within major regional centres and, and uh, major groupings of local government areas in, in the bigger cities. That hasn't come out of the Depart Department of Health and Ageing because their mandate is the aged. And so they don't see it as an area where they should get involved. So I, I think I'm very clear that, that the well-designed scheme nationally on disability will be the answer. It will cost money, but it is totally unfair that we have you know, great cover for people injured on the roads... If you're injured at work, it's pretty good as well, but uh, if you, something you've got when you were born or some other disability, then the cover is just not there. It just falls away because of the lack of political representation <laughs> and power for that category of, of people in society. So the NDIS and the way Bill Shorten let it originally announced seems to have bipartisan support, I think will ultimately provide the answer, provided they give the incentives and take a national view, look at the data and actually direct the resources specifically to all the niche areas uh, where action needs to be taken. Thank you. Thanks, Stephen. NDIS, of course, started bipartisan and lost some of that bipartisanship about 10 days ago when Joe Hockey started umming and ahhing about ongoing funding, didn't he? Another muddy issue. Um, folks, please thank our three panellists. Fran Bailey, popular local member. John Thwaites and Stephen Main. Thank you, folks. We will set you back into the wild. We hope you've enjoyed this highlight from the community's In Control Library. If you did, 
We'd love you to rate or review this podcast in the iTunes store and for you to share it with your friends. For further information about Communities in Control, visit communitiesincontrol.com.au.